Latinx psychologists play a vital role in the communities they serve. However, there remains underrepresentation of Latinx psychologists in the public service sector, which includes community and state hospitals, criminal justice systems, police and public safety, psychologists in Indian country, as well as the veteran affairs. Are there recruitment and retention strategies to consider? How about creating leadership opportunities and what might that look like? Welcome to People of Color in Psychology, the show that explores mental health topics specific to culture, diversity, and communities of color. I am your host, Jack Tsen. For our Hispanic Heritage series, today our guest is Dr. Edgar Villarreal, a licensed psychologist and chair for the American Psychological Association, Division 18, which is Psychologists in Public Service, VA section. Additionally, he is the National Clinical Director for Suicide Prevention at the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. Now, as part of his leadership experience and contributions, Dr. Villarreal was also awarded the Outstanding Alumni Award for Texas A&M. Today, Dr. Villarreal will be talking about his role as chair for the APA Division 18 and the importance of having Latinx psychologists in public service and leadership. Dr. Villarreal, thank you very much for joining me today. Thanks, Jack. Thanks for having and for creating this platform for this important conversation. Yeah, well, I am excited to have you. And as having worked in the VA system before, my understanding is we do need to provide a disclaimer. Do you want to go ahead and launch into that? <laughs> Jack, and, and I don't know if your viewers know that you used to work for the VA, so I, I know that you're very well aware of it. But yes, I uh, just wanted to start by saying that, again, my participation and views during the podcast represent my views and not the views of the U.S. government, the Department of Veteran Affairs, or even the American Psychological Association. So, so why don't you share with me a little bit more about your message here, because we are in the midst of Hispanic Heritage Month, hence this Hispanic Heritage series, really showing folks the importance of having Latinx psychologists, not just in public service or clinical roles, but also the importance of having them in leadership roles. Can you just talk openly about that? Yeah, Jack, thanks for posing the question. You know, I, I think one of the things that is important is to sometimes acknowledge what brings us to the work. So I, I wanted to just kind of start by sharing my own experience of, you know, being a person of color and being a minority and my experience with mental health in my own community, because I think in many ways, you know, it's our own personal experiences that kind of bring us to the work of mental health and bring us to the work of leadership. So I think, you know, I grew up in a border town community in Texas, Laredo, Texas. And I think, you know, being a, a Latino in a, in a Hispanic community, you know, mental health is was not a big part of the conversations that we would have in our family or in our community. I think a big part of 
what shaped my career is really kind of over the years understanding you know the importance of mental health you know my own experience and the experience of people around me and just being really surprised now going back to look at at how i grew up that mental health was really not something that people talked about careers in mental health certainly were not things that people talked about or even valued, right? Either you were a doctor or a lawyer or some some other type of role in public service. And I think mental health was something that, you know, early on was not really a value that was instilled in us. I think as people of color and minorities, we tend to have some very unique experiences about how we view mental health. And I think in large part for Latinos tends to be something that you rarely talk about. You tend to focus on, you know, family and how family can support you. I think in many ways, mental health was viewed as a, as a luxury uh, Hmm. for some people. And I think, you know, that in many ways, you know, created some, some challenges, you know, to, to see a, a community that struggled with mental health. And at the time I, didn't really recognize it or acknowledge it because I was, I think, you know, being impacted by the same views. And it wasn't until I think I I started to, you know, go into higher education and really kind of look at experiences, both personal and professional, and really started to shift my career towards mental health that I started to see how important this was going to be not only for the community at large, but also for minority communities. So I, I think the the challenge in in many ways for myself and for individuals of color is that, you know, mental health was not only something that was not valued, but it's also something that is hard to for it to feel attainable in many ways because of I think the challenges that we see in access to healthcare for minority individuals in general. And then when you really start even looking closer at that access and you start seeing that the people that are providing those services don't look like you, don't sound like you, don't really represent the community that they're serving, I think it, it creates challenges. So I think in, in many ways, yeah, you know, having a conversation here with you about what those challenges are and how increasing diversity and visibility within our workforce of mental health providers is is key if we want to change not only you know minority communities values towards mental health but i think our healthcare system and and how we acknowledge the importance of diversity and equity and inclusion and how we build our workforce and also provide services yeah, as you were sharing this, I had a little bit of reaction, and that is the thought where this type of service that is unattainable, and partially because maybe access, but also economics, it's costly. Right. And so if we see it as something that is beyond our reach, we have the resources, our community, our family, and our friends have the support system. Why do we need to go to this external thing that we have to pay for? It doesn't make sense. And in addition to that, we're paying for something 
where the people who are delivering the service, they don't really know about us. They don't know about our struggles. They don't look like us. So I can't help and just really feel that message as you were sharing that history. Yeah. And then, I mean, not if, if we're going to talk about history and this probably is a whole other podcast in and of itself, but I think we have to acknowledge that, you know, systems of healthcare predominantly have not been built with minority communities in mind. And there's a lot of, you know, institutional trauma that impacts communities that make it hard to not only make that healthcare accessible, but that really create some barriers in terms of people's perceptions about what that healthcare is going to look like. In many ways, you know, psychological services and healthcare services at some point in history have had some moments in our history that we're not most proud of that have negatively impacted minority communities. And, and you know, those are views that get carried by communities across generations. So I think there's a lot of work there to be done in terms of how we provide care, how we provide training to people that provide that care. And I think that that's where, you know, we bring it back to this idea of diversity and representation in our workforce is going to be really important to make sure that people can not only see themselves in the providers that are, that they're receiving the care from, but that, you know, we step into the workforce and try to change those perceptions and the systems and the programs and the services from within. And I think that that's where representation and voice comes into play. So within that too, is the recognition that there's inequity in place, which you've mentioned and alluded to throughout your graduate training or undergrad, you were already beginning to make that shift towards wanting to get into the psychology or mental health space. Yeah, I mean, I, I think in growing up, right, I think as I was kind of graduating and, and figuring out what I wanted to do with my life, I always knew that I kind of wanted to serve in some way. I think that that also comes from my own experience being in a Latino culture. You want to do for your family, you want to provide for your community. So I think service as a value is something that a lot of minority communities can connect with. I know that that's what probably push me in the direction of public service. I think it wasn't, you know, once I started to step outside of my community that those inequities started to feel more apparent. Because even in, in my community, I think, you know, even though those inequities were present, you know, coming from a border town, you're still a part of, of what could be seen as the majority in that context. So I think it was once I started to go into college and really kind of, you know, be more aware of uh, how much of a minority I was and, and how people would perceive my presence and how I would perceive my presence in those spaces that I started to become, I think, more aware of what inequity would feel like. Can you give me some examples of how others would per- perceive you? Because I think this is also tied to the leadership aspect. Right. Yeah, I think one one example that I think is, I, I don't know if you want to couch it of, as an aggression or a microaggression <laughs> that people tend to have is, you know, it, it was not usual, uh, at least when I was going to college, that you would leave 
Laredo, that you would leave Laredo at all, that you would go into higher ed and that, you know, you, you, usually the expectation was that you kind of stayed home. And, and I think it was, you know, a challenge in many ways to seek and find opportunities that would allow you that pathway to be able to step into higher ed. But I think when you go to college, when you start meeting different people, when you start experiencing sometimes some of those challenges, people would uh, sometimes say things like, you know, I've, I've never met someone like you <laughs> or, oh. you, you know, it, and it, it makes you kind of wonder like, what, what does that really mean? And I, and I think it was very well, you know, maybe not, didn't come from a place of, of malice, but I think it, it kind of gives you the sense that, you know, they're having a different experience. Well, you don't you're, belong. You don't belong, that's, right? That's what the message conveys. <laughs> you don't, yeah, exactly. And and it almost kind of makes you, you know, get back into that space of, you know, what is it about places like this in higher education or in your professional setting where people have a, a perception of, um, you know, well, what did you expect? <laughs> you know, did that mean that a person of color is not well represented in this space or in this role? And I think, you know, uh, I've, I've really kind of held on to that personal experience and can still see it in many ways. I, I think it, it it's changed in some capacity, but I, I feel like we we do have a tendency to minoritize people. And I think sometimes people kind of highlight certain accolades like, oh, you know, you're you're a psychologist of color or you're, you know, you know, you've reached this point of your career and you tend to be a Latino. I think in many ways it shows how much, you know, how much more work there is to be done. But it also, I think, highlights the inequity that the reality is that when we look at our workforce, right, when we look at psychologists of color, we tend to only account for, you know, less than 10% of the workforce that is out there, right? So I think people will continue to make statements like that. And I think I will continue to feel, you know, minoritized in some ways until we start really working towards increasing diversity where that is no longer the sentiment, that is no longer the experience that they have, and that that is no longer the experience that we get to have because you know there's there's more representation mm -hmm. in education there's more representation in our graduate programs there's more representation in our workforce so i think that that's one one example where i think it, it made me think twice about well, well how are people experiencing me how are people experiencing my success how are people experiencing my presence even at a smaller scale like in the meetings that you are a part of you know you as you kind of move into different areas of of your profession as a minority those percentages start decreasing even more and more and more and more. And you really kind of do notice your presence. But I think even as you kind of start noticing those inequities, you you start noticing the potential for the impact that you can have on those spaces and, you know, the role that you get to play in terms of representing your own diversity, your own culture, and to start really challenging those perceptions and really start changing, you know, the perceptions that might be reinforced because people 
aren't used to having those experiences with psychologists of color or individuals that are persons of color and are in leadership positions. Just by the sheer exposure of having a person of color in leadership position will help challenge certain assumptions. And we hope that people can actually see it as I'm trying to relearn and create a space for people of color or different communities. Yeah, mm-hmm. <sighs> it is unnerving to hear the realities of as you advance in leadership, the percentage just decreases even more. So one of your motivation to keep going is because you recognize because there's less, by you being in a leadership position, it provides a greater impact. And so for folks who we know people of color have leadership experience, they have leadership skills, leadership aspirations. However, in looking at some of the literature, they talk about how even psychologists, you know, uh, retention is very difficult for folks of color. And so if we're trying to increase the pipeline from having, say, Latinx psychologists in public service and try to move it up the leadership ladder. I'm curious from your experience for our listeners who are mostly mental health professionals, faculty members who work in mental health, are there any tips you would recommend try to advocate or support or things they can do to try to you know, lift and promote each other up as they're advancing in leadership? Yeah, that's a good question, Jack. I, I'll take it even a step further because I, I, I think it starts even before, like if, if we're trying to enhance diversity, once people have already achieved a higher level of education, right? If, if we're trying to enhance diversity at the, you know, even at the, at the bachelor's or master's level, I think it, we're, we've already kind of missed the mark because those percentages have already gotten lower right? Because we know that we need to have conversations about diversity before people start making decisions about the careers that they want to get into. So I do think that, you know, in many ways, we we have to begin those conversations and start establishing those pathways early on, you know, as, as folks are thinking about their careers. So whether that means, you know, how we have those conversations with our families, with our cultures, how we have those conversations, you know, in in our high schools, because people need to think and see that it's possible. They need to see that there's a need there. They need to see that there's people that, you know, that look like you, that talk like you, that are, you know, going through those pathways. So it's achievable as well. I think if we wait until people have made it into grad school or into a higher level of ed to start enhancing diversity, then we we might be missing the mark. So I wanted to take it that step further because I think, you know, as we enhance uh, visibility, you know, within higher education, you're going to start seeing those percentages grow. And hopefully, you know, it continues to empower minorities to, you know, not stop at the bachelors, if that's something that they want to pursue, you know, to be able to really start enhancing diversity in our training programs is, I think, going to be a key part of that. But when we're looking at 
enhancing the workforce. I think there's important things that folks can start doing to not only recruit, but I think the part that we miss sometimes is to retain. I think there's often in not only, I think, mental health, but I think in any profession, this idea that we need more diversity. And then when we achieve that diversity, we don't know, you know, how to continue to to nourish it, how to continue to retain that diversity. People don't know what to do with a more diverse workforce. So I think that that's probably another part of that conversation is not just recruitment, but retention. But when we look at recruitment, a couple of things that people can think about differently is, you know, how do we promote diversity in how we market positions, especially since those positions in many ways, you know, you may not acknowledge that minorities may not see themselves as qualified for those positions. In many ways, a lot of people may struggle seeing whether they would uh, be seen as a suitable or accepted in those positions. So I think promoting diversity and marketing of positions is important. I think it speaks a lot whenever you have individuals that are recruiting for positions and from the very onset talk about the importance of diversity in the workforce that they're looking to recruit when they're promoting also that they're seeking more diverse candidates. Uh, and there's simple ways that people can do that. And I think you've start you've started to see that I think happen a little bit more where employers are starting to include equal opportunity statements in their job announcements where they kind of reassert their values and their commitment towards diversity, not only in hiring, but in and also how they tend to approach their work. Promoting diversity in marketing, you know, actually using specific visuals and pictures that show that they are recruiting a diverse workforce and that their teams are, you know, involved, you know, different views and different perspectives and different people. So I think there's ways that people can start really getting creative and thinking about the language that they use when they promote positions, whether they're targeting and messaging their positions towards underrepresented groups of providers. Another interesting, you know, recruitment strategy that that I think has become more popular is the use of blind interviews and blind reviews where, you know, you're starting to kind of think about the bias that sometimes is involved in how we make decisions. You know, I think there's actually you know, studies that have been done in terms of the bias that is involved when, you know, people read someone's name that sounds like they come from a minority group and the impact that that might have on their ultimate selection. So I think sometimes you see that there's now processes that are more focused on diversity, equity, and inclusion in terms of how people recruit and select positions that I think are important to to understand that. Because I think the whole point of bias, even though you do sometimes engage in training to minimize bias, you know, bias by definition sometimes is unrecognizable, right? So I think, you know, developing ways in which you can, you know, train 
people in leadership positions to be aware of that bias and how that bias plays into selection is important. There's ways to go about making changes in, in uh, the recruitment process to, to be able to account for less of that bias, whether you're, you know, removing names from a resume review or whether, you know, sometimes you have a video interview uh, and you choose that through all your candidates, you're not going to use cameras, that you're going to just focus on people's responses. So I think that that's another, you know, interesting way in which people can engage in recruitment uh, strategies to remove bias. I think there's also been a lot of talk about uh, standardizing questions, uh, making sure that you have, you know, questions that are standardized so you can really kind of focus on people's responses and people's performance. And in some ways, uh, also standardizing a question that focuses on people's approach to issues of diversity in the workplace. I think often we focus so much on performance-based interviewing that we uh, also forget that you know, a part of standardizing questions can involve seeing how people perform in situations where they have to take diversity into into consideration, uh, whether it's in their interactions with their own coworkers or in how they approach the work. So yeah, let me pause sense. there. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense because it signals to the folks that you're recruiting that this is important for your organization to even consider it as an interview question because you see the implications of diversity throughout your organization. You know, one thing, uh, so that's more of like the, the recruitment side. And I think retention has its, you know, its strategies. The part I, I'm also wondering about is, and so for folks who are thinking about possibly getting into leadership or even contemplating leadership, do you have any tips for them? <laughs> that's a good question. <laughs> Sometimes people ask me, like, is leadership something that you look for or that looks for you, right? Like, do you fall into it? And I, you know, I've thought about that in many ways. And, and I'm going to go back to something that you said, Jack, that I think is really important to acknowledge is that by virtue of a lot of the struggles that people of color and, and minorities experience as they try to navigate some of those challenges, I think it in, it instills leadership within you. And I think, you know, often you have individuals that are minorities take leadership roles within their families, within the communities that they're a part of. And, and you know, because of a lot of that adversity, it creates values that are that gear you up towards leadership. So I would say that just based on my own experience, I do think that it's been a mix of both. I think uh, leadership opportunities have been things that I've had to work hard to be able to create for myself sometimes. But I think that the desire for leadership and what people have seen and I think the approach that I bring to leadership has come from my personal experiences as well. So I, I think, you know, I, I think I would start there, Jack. I would say, you know, think about 
what it's taken for you to get this far in your career and how much work and how much experience you have and give yourself credit for that and give yourself credit for the fact that, you know, leadership just doesn't come in the form of a title. That leadership comes from the experience that you bring to that title. And minorities have a lot to offer to that experience and to that title. And I think when those opportunities become available, you have an opportunity to really reframe those experiences for yourself and for the people that are looking to recruit into those experiences as opportunities that you have a lot to offer, that you maybe have a lot to offer more than the standard candidates that are looking for those same leadership positions too. So I think that that's one, one aspect of, of leadership that I think people sometimes forget that you don't need the title to be a leader, that in many ways you probably are a leader. And as a person of color, what were some of the challenges you faced in your career that you overcame, which you would be willing to share with our listeners? Yeah, I think the first, the first thing that I can think of, Jack, is I first had to get through my own personal barriers of what I felt, what, what I felt my value was as a, as a, a professional, as a psychologist of color, as an early career psychologist, because I stepped into leadership roles, uh, I think, uh, pretty early in my career. I think at first, I think had to really challenge my own assumptions, sometimes challenge that imposter syndrome that comes early on. And sometimes I, I think you, you know, people may still struggle with it at times. So I think it was first trying to really find value did I bring to the positions that I was looking for and why was I pursuing those positions. So my first position in and leadership was at the Austin VA where you and I worked at. You know, I it was uh, pretty early on in my career. I had, you know, I had only really started being a frontline clinician for about three years and and three to four years in the VA before I applied for my first program manager position. And you know, it really took. Uh, a, a lot of kind of searching to to make that decision, but I would also say that the people that I've surrounded myself with throughout my career have played a huge role in helping me challenge my own assumptions and challenge other people's assumptions about what we can bring into these roles. I think a person that you and I both know very well, Dr. Aaron Andrews, you know, is a good example of. Of, of great leadership, of people that look to, you know, really lift people up in many ways. And, you know, I think in large part because of her encouragement and I think the encouragement of other great leaders that I've called colleagues along the way have uh, allowed me that opportunity to kind of start seeing myself in a different way and start pursuing more of those roles. So I think once I stepped into that first leadership position, it really opened a lot of doors, both I think personally and professionally. And but that was a that was a challenging role, Jack, because I think when I first stepped into that leadership position, 
there weren't many other people of color in leadership roles. And it made me think even more about what is this really about? <laughs> is it really about this position? Is it really, is it about the system? Is it, so I, I think it was a very eye-opening experience because it showed how important it was for me to step into that role and how important it probably was going to be for me to work hard at that role. And I think since then, it's made me be more aware of my presence in leadership as a person of color and how important it's been, I think, throughout different uh, leadership roles in my career to make sure that I make those, you know, those opportunities even more available for individuals, not just of color, but minorities in general, to be more mindful of, you know, my own presence as a leader, even in meetings, and and to kind of look around the room and and take a beat and see, you know, whose voices are heard, whose voices are not being heard. So I, I think it, it's been very transformative for me, Jack. And and I think that it it speaks to the value that we can bring as leaders. You know, it's not just about, you know, the leadership experience that you bring, but, you know, we would hope that as people, we bring all parts of ourselves to the work that we do. And I, and I think it, it does cause you to really kind of think twice about, you know, why are you going to these positions and the impact that you can have? Yeah. Well, I want to say and acknowledge that, you know, during our time at the Austin VA, it was fantastic having a person of color in a leadership position, just given the history, right? And I'm also glad that you are speaking to us about, you know, people of color in leadership positions. And do you have any final thoughts or messages for our listeners? Yeah, I mean, I, I would, I would say that there's much more <laughs> that that I think we could talk about. I mean, we could talk about this for for so many oh, yeah. hours. For hours, it's, yeah. It's something that I think feels you know, personal to, to a lot of us in many ways. I would say that for your viewers, especially in, you know, in light of Hispanic Heritage Month, I think it's important to make sure that now more than ever, we allow ourselves the opportunity to make ourselves seen and our voices heard and to really be able to uh, find your value and what you do and show people how important that is uh, and to really try to have the courage to you know find yourself in spaces where other people like you have not ventured into i think in many ways we have opportunities to create those pathways for other people for ourselves and I think that we can start seeing a lot of those challenges and barriers that we've talked about slowly change uh, over time. And I, I know that I wouldn't be in this position, Jack, if it weren't for other people that have come, I think, before us to be able to, how do they say it, lift as you rise, so to speak. And I've been, I think, very fortunate to have these opportunities, but I think we all need to really kind of work together to continue to uh, elevate ourselves and our profession. So I really appreciate you giving me the time and the opportunity to at least start a conversation about this if folks aren't already thinking about it. Well, it is a pleasure to have you here. And 
again, thank you so much for your courage, your words, wisdom, insight, and encouragement and supporting our community. Dr. Villarreal, thank you so much. Thank you, Jack. Good seeing you again. I hope you liked this episode. Please subscribe and share. We love to hear from you, so send me a message on LinkedIn or email. The People of Color in Psychology is brought to you by the Multicultural Counseling Institute, and I'm your host, Jack Sen.